Welcome to the Assembly of Yahweh Sermon Podcast. We're so glad you're here. For more information, you can visit hallelujah.org or download the AOI app on Apple or Google Play. So, to start off, I want to ask a question. Has anybody over the years ever experienced uh, seeing a friend or even a relative or maybe someone online um, begin to actually question the writings of Paul to wonder if, he, if he's even a, a proper, an apostle, disciple? They even start to call him the lawless one because the, the way they interpret his writings. And down the road, once they've maybe even start to reject Paul, they start to reject the Messiah himself. Uh, saying that Yeshua is not the Messiah. And they reject the entire New Testament and just either go straight to Judaism or New Age or maybe even atheist. I myself have seen it several times over the past maybe six years in this faith, sadly. Um, It sneaks up on people. You don't think it will happen to certain people. Uh, You think they're solid in the faith and then they stumble across certain videos online, maybe YouTube or Facebook, Instagram, that plant these little seeds of doubt, these little one-liners, and that grows into this tree of doubt where these people start to reject the writings of Paul and even come to the conclusion that Yeshua is not Messiah. So today I want to talk about what's known as the counter-missionary movement. It has several names. Uh, Counter-missionary movement. There's also anti-missionary movement and also just the anti-Yeshua movement. So how, what is this and how did it all start? Well, it, it, you know, people have been butting heads whether or not Yeshua's Messiah since the first century, of course. But the more modern movement that we find today um, started around the time when the Christians really started to go on mission trips to Israel and other high populous places where Jewish people are to try to convert them to the Christian Jesus. And it worked for many of them. A lot of Jews converted and accepted Yeshua, but they would call him Jesus, the Sunday Christian version of that. And now from a Jewish perspective, you see that, you know, say your son named Timmy or whatnot, a good Jewish boy, keeps the Shabbat, eats clean, keeps Passover and whatnot, runs into these um, Christian evangelists, Christian missionaries, and converts him to become a Christian. Part of us thinks that's great. But from the Jewish family, they see now that this Sunday Christian version of the Messiah is now saying, you don't have to keep Shabbat. You can eat pork. You can eat unclean. You don't have to do the feast days. Embrace Christmas and Easter. And to a Jewish family, that is a huge threat, a huge disrespect. It's devastating to the family. It might not be in our culture, but in, the, in a lot of Jewish families, if you accept this Jesus, as they say in the Sunday Christian churches, um, you pretty much get disowned by your family, by many, many Jewish families. Um, you pretty much lose your inheritance and everything else. So there's a big fight there where they're seeing a lot of these missionaries successfully convert people to Sunday Christianity. And so, in response, many Jewish organizations gathered and got together and created and formed counter-missionary organizations. Once to disprove that Yeshua can't be the Messiah, come back to the Jewish faith, keep Shabbat. And so, sadly now, the two are going at it. It's a bit of a stalemate, if you ask me. 
So the Jews that are not accepting Yeshua are responding to the missionary arguments and now bringing their own arguments. And you can see the conundrum, right? You either want to keep Torah, right, as the scriptures tell you to, but then you can't accept the only version of the Messiah that you've ever heard from Sunday Christianity um, that would lead you to having to no longer keep Torah. You just meet up on Sundays and embrace Christmas and Easter. But then you have the other side where it's like, okay, we accept Yeshua, but mainstream Christianity tells you we're no longer under the law, it's nailed to the cross, and so on. We all know those arguments. And so you're sort of stuck in the middle. We don't know what to do there. So pretty much what I, what I notice we spend a lot of time on, which is great, is defending our faith from Sunday Christianity um, doctrine that tries to tell us that we don't have to keep the Sabbath or we don't have to eat clean, and that's great. But I feel like a lot of times we are neglecting the other side of the uh, pendulum where we need to defend Yeshua's Messiah and also be able to defend the rhetoric from the Jewish side that's trying to disqualify Yeshua's Messiah, the anti-missionary movement. So first, I want to be able to defi uh, define it, identify it, and be able to defend our faith from it when you stumble across it. I've seen one too many of my friends and acquaintances reject Yeshua because of this rhetoric that they present, and I think we should talk about it and more regularly talk about it and be more prepared when the challenge comes to us. Obviously, I want everyone to come to Messiah, and... I just want them to come to the proper Hebrew Messiah, the one that promotes Torah, promotes Shabbat, promotes the feast days, and so much more. So my three main points today. The first one is comparing the Hebrew Yeshua versus the Roman Jesus. So just to differentiate, that's how I'll call them. Number two, uh, identifying typical popular one-liners from the anti-missionary movement. There are dozens, but I'll just pick a few. And number three, proving to an anti-missionary or even to a Jew that Yeshua is the Messiah just by looking at the Old Testament. You don't have to use, you should use the New Testament, but you don't have to. You can still prove with heavy, lots of heavy evidence that Yeshua is and has to be the Messiah. So point number one, this Greek Catholic Roman Jesus, as the Sunday Christians promote, um, consistently says you no longer need to keep Torah, and even if you try to, you, you've heard the, the rhetoric, you know, you're putting yourself under a curse, and, and so much more. And then, you, you know, he promotes the embracing of paganism, Christmas, Easter, and even Halloween. Um, they, you know, the Jewish perspective, they're strict monotheists, so mainstream Christianity will then even promote this Trinitarian, triune being, uh, three-personal, uh, what they would call polytheistic, model of the one true El. Again, this uh, Sunday Roman Messiah, Messiah also promotes Gnosticism, uh, Greek thinking in a lot of ways, including the escaping of the human flesh to become a spirit, and we believe heavily here that we resurrect from the dead. And even today in a lot of the other hard left churches, they're starting to promote woke ideologies from the LGBTQ movement and it's so much more so they have like a woke messiah in a lot of these uh, assemblies, sadly. And most importantly, this Roman version of the messiah breaks the Deuteronomy 12 commandment. The Deuteronomy 12 commandment says, if an angel or a man comes to you, performs miracles, prophesies, comes to pass fully, 
and everything seems good to go, but at the end says, let us go follow after other Elohim. Then you should detach from them and do not have anything to do, have no business with them. And so from a Jewish perspective, can you really blame them if they have never heard of the Hebrew Messiah, all they have heard is the Greek Roman Jesus, they're like, yeah, of course we'll reject him, right? I mean, he doesn't keep Torah. He preaches people to break the Torah in a lot of ways. He embraces a lot of the heathens' holidays and so much more. So you almost can't help but to feel sorry for the fact that they don't know the Hebrew Yahshua who promotes keeping Shabbat, who promotes the one true Elohim, the Father alone, strict monotheism, forbids paganism, forbids eating unclean abominations, preaches and teaches the resurrection of the dead and the kingdom to come on earth. So you could tell these Jews, I got good news for you. The Yeshua that came in the first century kept Shabbat. He kept the feast days, the Moedim. Just know that Yeshua is our ultimate rabbi, our teacher. You should accept him as Messiah and you're saved. And you don't have to do away with the Torah. And I think this is exciting because most people out there trying to tell the good news of the Messiah to the Jews are the Sunday Christians. And we're, we, have that, we have that perfect formula. We have the solution that you will see as such a great revival if we present to them the Hebrew Messiah. So point number two, I also want to point out some typical one-liners from the anti-Yeshua rhetoric. So although I want them to come to the Messiah, I also cannot let them run wild with these one-liners, and one of the ways to convert them is to expose their arguments. Some of these one-liners that you'll hear is, no man can die for another man's sins. So yeah, Yeshua can't die for your sins. Torah forbids human sacrifice. And three, there is no savior besides Yahweh. So apparently, according to our faith, Yeshua is supposedly breaking all these rules and laws. So let's quickly go to the first one. No man could die for another man's sins. At first you hear that and you're thinking, wow, that's a, that's a good argument. I mean, our whole faith is based on Yeshua dying for our atonement. Scripture says that no man could die for another man's sins in Deuteronomy 24, 16, and also in Ezekiel. It says, fathers shall not be put to death for their sons, nor shall sons be put to death for their fathers. Everyone shall be put to death for his own sin. Now, there are commandments given to us on how to treat our neighbor, how to love our neighbor. There's also commandments on how to love Yahweh. So depending on which commandment you're looking at, you've got to decipher how is it applied. This commandment, when used against us, is misapplied. This commandment is strictly for how to love your neighbor, how to treat fellow man. It's for civil magistrates, for judges, people in authority, like in today our police or judges. It's for corporal punishment, man versus man. So in, in, in other words, if my great-grandfather owed somebody a million dollars, and then they were looking for him, trying to hunt him down, and he passed away, and I got nothing to do with it. I'm just a relative. But they come after me next, saying, if you don't pay up what he owes us, we're putting you in jail, and putting you to death. This commandment was strictly for that, to protect people in Israel from having to be unjustly treated for something that their father might have done or a father having to deal with their, what their son has done. Now, it's, got, it's not a commandment between us and Yahweh. Obviously, and you tell this to the Jew and use the Old Testament, the Tanakh, obviously the children have bore the sins of the father, 
Just look at Adam. Adam, our father, sinned, and thus all men must die. And so you kind of throw it back at Adam and say, well, then if no man could bear the sins of his father, then why is it that we all must die for the sins of Adam? And a lot of times they'll change the subject really fast. But just be ready for that. Be ready for what I call the one-liners. And if you do your research, you can come back right to them and ask them a question, just like when Yeshua used to do when he got accused or falsely accused. Point number two, Yeshua as a human sacrifice. They'll say something along the lines of, human sacrifice is against Torah. Yahweh doesn't require human sacrifice. First thing you should do is ask them to define their terms. What do you mean by human sacrifice? A lot of the times what they meant is something that Torah forbids is specifically anybody dying for a false pagan idol, burnt on an offering on an altar, and it's usually an innocent child. So where do we see in scripture that Yeshua died for a false idol, that he died as a burnt offering on a pagan idol altar, or that he was some innocent child? If anything, Yeshua died willingly. He says, I lay down willingly my life for the sheep. And Isaiah 53 is a great chapter to take them to, because a lot of times they'll say, no man can die for another man's sins, and, and, and they'll also go to this one about humans giving up their life for the many. And Isaiah 53 goes straight through that. Yahweh was pleased to put all of our iniquities and sin onto this one suffering servant. A lot of times they'll say, well, that's Israel. The principle still applies that you believe these people are bearing sins, taking on iniquity of others. So even if they think it's Israel, they still can't get away with the fact that one man laid his life down, or a nation, for the sins of many. Now the sacrifice Yeshua did is not the kind that we think of like an altar or Balaam, right? The type of sacrifice Yeshua did was more like the type of sacrifice you see with soldiers storming the beach on D-Day or firefighters going into the Twin Towers on 9-11. We say they sacrificed their lives for save the lives of many. We don't actually think it was a religious idol sacrifice. It's more of a laying down your life to save your friend's life. And that's exactly what scriptures say Yeshua accomplished. And then third, uh, there is no savior besides me. You're going to hear this so many times, you're going to roll your eyes to the back of your head. That's if you get into the crowd of the anti-missionary, anti-Yeshua crowd. I dive straight into it. I wanted to find their, their strongest arguments because I really want to know what's your best arguments and how can we defend our faith from it. Isaiah 43.11 I, even I, am Yahweh, and besides me there is no Savior. As a quick one-liner, you might think, oh no, if Yahweh the Father is the Savior, then I can't have this Son as a Savior also. Again, context is key. And again, this is just a one-liner. What was going on during the time of Isaiah? They were in captivity. And during captivity, Israel was looking through all the nations to try to find someone to redeem them. Now, Yahweh says, I put you in captivity, and I'm the one that's going to bring you out of captivity. I'm the one that sends the enemies to capture you, and I'll be the one to raise up a savior to bring you out. There is no salvation outside of me. Stop going to the nations. That's the context. But it doesn't say that humans can't be called saviors. We have a, an Old Testament verse to back that up. And again, you always want to go and use the Old Testament when witnessing to the ones who reject the New Testament. Nehemiah 9.27 
Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies, who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you, and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors, who saved them from the hand of their enemies. A good example, obviously, is Moses. He raised up Moses, sent him, brought him out of slavery. The judges, just read the book of Judges. It's an entire book of all the people who were sent, anointed, and saved Israel for, from um, captivity. So again, you return the question and say, if there's no Savior besides the Father, what do we do with all these saviors that Nehemiah was talking about? A lot of times I think people will tuck their tail and go running for the hills, or they'll straw man you or something, but just be prepared. There's a lot of emotion involved in this argument, but I think we should always be prepared to give an answer. They might go away a little upset, but maybe a couple weeks, a couple months, a year later, they, they'll come to Yeshua. And that's the whole purpose. It's not to embarrass anybody. It's to show them that our faith is standing on a solid rock. We don't have a bunch of holes in our theology. Point three, finding Yeshua in the Tanakh. Now, that sounds very Jewish, but again, if you want to witness to someone, Paul says, when I'm with the Greeks, I talk like a Greek. When I'm with the Jews, I talk like a Jew. When you're talking to the certain audience and you say certain words, it might trigger something in their mind that already puts up a wall. For example, surprisingly, you say the word Jesus, they get upset. They think of the Catholic version right there, you know, trying to replace the Jews. But you say Yahoshua or Yahshua, they're like, oh, who's that? Well, what's that all about? That's a Hebrew name. They can relate to that. Same thing with Tanakh. If you say Old Testament, they're already upset with you because they're like, what do you mean it's old? <laughs> they'll, they'll think like, you're trying to get rid of it. You Christians are always saying it's old, it's replaced, it's, a, you know, it's done away with. So if you want to keep their ears and keep them talking to you, say Tanakh. You actually get some brownie points. It's an acronym derived from the names of the three divisions of the Hebrew Bible. The Torah, the first five books, the prophets, the Nevi'im, and the writings, the Ketuvim. So you put it together, it's Tanakh. It's actually kind of fun to say, so you sound really smart when you drop that word. So let's go through the Tanakh to prove that Yeshua has to be the Messiah. Starting when they'll say, show me in my Bible, my Hebrew Bible, where you find this Yeshua. They want you, a lot of times they'll straw man you say, where in the Old Testament or where in the Tanakh does it say there will be a man named Jesus who will come in the first century? That's, that's a bit of a straw man. It's literally there's a lot of things in scripture that's not plainly stated like that. But when we look at the prophecies of a Mashiach and we put it all together, it paints a picture that literally lands us right on time when Yeshua is born and starts his ministry. So let's go down the list. First things first is Genesis 3.15. From her seed shall the head of the serpent be crushed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. It's already we're starting to see the message of the cross, where he's temporarily bruised, i.e. he dies on the cross, but he, through that, permanently crushes the head of sin and death. And so Yahweh is telling Adam and Eve, through your righteous lineage, through the Hebrews, I will provide you a savior to crush sin and death. Genesis twenty-two eighteen, This is to Abraham. 
And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. The word offspring there is also translated to the word seed, singular, one child. And Paul even talks about that in Galatians, saying, Through this one singular seed shall many nations be blessed. A lot of times the Jews will say, Oh, it's just the nation of Israel that everyone's blessed. Technically, yeah, but Scripture, the Hebrew, it's talking about one child, one person, one offspring from Abraham that will bless many nations. And even Yeshua says, Abraham looked forward to this day for this one man. Genesis 49.10. We move on from Abraham. We go from Abraham. We're following him now. Isaac, Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. and He blesses all 12. He gets to Judah. We get more information about the Messiah here. Genesis 49.10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So in plain terms, they're saying, through the tribe of Judah, we will have a king for all of Israel. Follow the kingly lineage, and before the scepter comes to an end, the record-keeping of the kingly lineage, the Messiah will be here. So all, we're getting real specific. We're not just a general Hebrew righteous lineage. It's no longer just all Abraham's children. It's specifically the descendants of Judah. We're getting real narrow now, but we can get even more narrow. Numbers twenty four seventeen. Balaam is looking over all of Israel. Again, the Jews will always say, oh, the nation of Israel is the Mashiach. Well, Balaam looks over all the tribe of Israel. What does he say? I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter, again, shall rise up out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. So again, we have this scepter, the kingly lineage, shall rise. And he beholds him, but not now. So tell, ask the anti-missionary if the Israelites were the Messiah, just as a nation as a whole. Then why is it when Balaam looks over all of Israel, he says, I behold him, but not yet. He's not here yet. That's a big one. But again, he says, follow the star, follow the scepter. He's not here yet, though. Second Samuel, we're going on to the prophets now. We just covered Torah, the first five books. And you tell him, let's go over to the Torah, the prophets. King David is promised of a Messiah. Another time, they'll, they'll try to make anybody the Messiah except for Yeshua, by the way. So they'll try to say that Israel, the nation, is Messiah. They'll say King David is the Messiah. They'll try several things. So you take them to 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 15. Yahweh speaks to, uh, sends a message to King David, says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, you shall come from that, uh, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And we know that's in the book of Hebrews also. So you tell this person, if we're supposed to follow the tribe of Judah, they agree on that part. And they say, okay, follow the kingly lineage of David. They agree to that part. And the kingly lineage ends at 70 A.D. at the destruction of the temple. They no longer have any more records after that. Then wouldn't you think that maybe the Messiah had to come before that? 
that he already came if Yahweh allowed the temple and the records of the kingly lineage to, to cease right then and there? They say maybe, but again, they're following the seed, they're following the scepter, they're following the kingly lineage. Isaiah 53 is always going to be a great prophetic chapter to go to. It says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. They a lot of times want to say Israel was the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, but if Israel is the one that's guilty and being led astray and the one who's always in captivity for sin, they can't be their own atonement. That wouldn't make any sense. This is about one specific person, just as we've been looking at in Torah, one singular seed. One of my favorite chapters to go to for prophecy that really does hit it on the first century timetable is Daniel 9. Daniel is a prophet during the time of captivity, not only with the Babylonians, but with the Medo Persian captivity. He's praying for Israel, saying, We deserve this. We've been sinning for much too long, and we deserve this captivity. Then the angel comes to him and gives him the 70 week prophecy. Have you guys ever studied the 70 weeks? If not, I highly encourage it. It applies to several aspects of our faith, not only proving Yeshua's Messiah, but then the credibility of how divine and supernatural our Bible is. Daniel is about to have, to the T, right on the money, timing as to when Yeshua's ministry will start. I give you 70 weeks for you to return to the land, rebuild Jerusalem, and at the 70th week, the anointed one will come to bring an end to sin. So we take these 70 weeks and we're like, is it literal? No, it's prophetic. According to Numbers 14.34 and Ezekiel 4.6, one prophetic day equals one literal year. So we take 70 whole weeks and we get 490 literal years. Now the question is, when do we start the timer? Daniel 9.25, start the timer when you get the decree to go back to Jerusalem and build your city. That happened in 457 B.C., King Artaxerxes decreed, and from there we count 69 weeks, which is 483 years, to get fast forward to the 70th week. And what year does that land in? 27 AD, the time Yeshua is being baptized and anointed. We begin the last seven years, the last prophetic week, with Yeshua starting his ministry. How could Daniel know that, just sitting there in, in Babylon and Medo Persia? This is obviously another sign that if the 70 weeks, which is an old Tanakh prophecy, is applied, you can't be looking for the Messiah in the 20th century, 21st century. It's always in the first century. Halfway through the final week, so three and a half years, his ministry, right? It's the end of his ministry. He gets cut off, as Daniel says. Prophetically, what it means to be cut off is he's cut off from the living. He's killed. Another prophetic sign that this isn't just some make-believe prophecy. Verse 26, Messiah will be cut off, but not for himself. Another sign that he's an atonement. He dies for this, and he's a suffering servant for the many. Daniel 9, 27, he will confirm a covenant with many for one week. 
in the middle of the week, he will be put to an end to, um, sorry, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. So he begins the final week at the start of his ministry, the 70th week. His ministry lasts three and a half years, and halfway through the week, he dies, putting an end to sacrifice and offerings. Later on in prophecy, it talks about how the temple will be destroyed. It's part of the 70 weeks, is that soon after, the temple's destroyed. And that the prince of the Roman Empire comes to destroy it and perform the abominable thing. They slaughter a, a pig in the Holy of Holies, I believe. So this prophecy alone, without all the other verses I use, this alone should point that somebody, let's just play devil's advocate and say we don't know who it is, but somebody that is a Jew who has a lineage of David, who kept up with it, who's born in the first century, starts his ministry at 27 AD. I wonder who that could be. We haven't even gotten to the writings. We did the Torah and the prophets. But I'm going to go with Psalm 22 with you guys. It's one of my favorites. Verse 1. My El, my El, why have you forsaken me? Yeshua says in Mark 15, 34, Yeshua cried, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, why have you forsaken me? Verse 7 and 8 of Psalm 22. They laugh and mock at me. Mark 15, 32. They screamed and shouted and mocked him, saying, Save yourself, come off that cross if you are the son of Yah. Verse 16, they pierce my hands and my feet. It was a thousand years before crucifixion was even invented. Nobody knew about dying by piercing of hands and feet. You know, this is, again, a prophetic sign that this Messiah, the suffering servant, will not just die any old way, but specifically be pierced in his hands and feet. This is huge. And if you do a little research, you find out a lot of the people who don't want Yeshua to be Messiah will try and rewrite that verse right then and there and say, it doesn't say pierce, it says something else. And you do homework, find out they're literally messing with the scriptures to try their best to divert you from Yeshua as Messiah. Verse 17. <clears throat> I may tell all my bones. It's a prophetic way of saying his bones were not broken. Everyone else, all the criminals who were crucified, would be on the cross for days if their legs were not broken. The reason is, when you're on the cross, you're choking for air. So you pull yourself up so you can breathe, and then you drop back down. Well, for the Romans to quickly finish off the crucifixion, capital punishment, they would break the legs so that you couldn't pull yourself up, and you would suffocate to death. Yeshua was beaten so badly before he was crucified that he didn't stay on the cross long enough to have his legs broken. Another prophetic sign, how would he have known that if everybody who gets crucified is guaranteed a breaking of legs, Yeshua's the one who doesn't? Another sign, this is talking about the Messiah. And then finally in verse 18, they cast lots upon my vesture. Romans were casting lots for his garments right there at the base of the cross. John 19, 23-24. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Yahshua, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to each soldier, and the tunic also. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, Let's not tear it, but cast lots for it, to decide whose it shall be. This happened so that the scriptures will be fulfilled. Quote, They divided my garments among themselves, <clears throat> and they cast lots for my clothing. So to conclude, 
When the, when the Christians, they, they, they're sincere from what they understand so far with scriptures. They're doing their best with what they know. I got a lot of good friends who are Christians. But they're missing a, such a big part, and that's the Torah. So they're trying to convert these Jews to, to Yeshua because of what they know. But they're missing a huge part. The Jews know, according to Torah, the Tanakh, that the Messiah would never forbid Torah, would never promote breaking Shabbat or promote paganism or any of that. Now here we are with the solution. We have the Messiah and we have the Torah. Could you imagine us in Israel telling them, keep your Shabbats. If anything, please teach me a few things that you know about Shabbat and let's, let's have Shabbat together. And they'll say, but, but you're a follower of this uh, Yahshua. How is this possible? I thought he does away. No. That's just a false, misconstrued version of the Messiah who apparently does away with Torah. Same thing with Paul, a misconstrued version of Paul that preaches against Torah, and it's not true. We need to recognize it whenever we do see the anti-Yeshua rhetoric, though, because although they're just responding to what happened to them, we can't allow them to now pull us out of our faith. And sadly, that's happened. Many people in our faith now are falling for these one-liners. You know, no man could die for another man's sins. There is no savior besides me, and so much more. And they're getting plucked up left and right. Where's Joe? Where's Tom? Well, he rejects Yeshua now, or so on. You go and you dig a little, ask him why you reject it. And a lot of their one-liners, they're just a bunch of one-liners that I just presented to you. We need to know how to witness to a Torah-observant Jew. Don't go quoting Paul to a Jew because he's going to say, okay, great. That's like, that's like a Mormon quoting the Book of Mormon to them. You know, it's like we don't accept the New Testament. So we have to know as Torah observant believers, we have to be experts in Torah to know how to defend Yeshua with the scriptures, just like Peter and Paul did with the Bereans. He went to the Bereans with the scriptures. At that time, they didn't have the Book of Romans. They had the Tanakh. So how much more should we be ready to witness with just a Tanakh, if need be. We have the good news of a Hebrew Yahshua. We, as Torah keepers in Yahshua, are unique, and I think we should be loud and bold with this unique perspective of the faith. And I think we're growing, so we should be prepared to give an answer. So the good news is, you can tell these anti-missionaries, anti-Yahshua people, you can keep your Torah, keep your Jewish identity, keep Pesach, Passover, Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, just know that it all points to the first century Jew who comes from the David, lineage of David, Yeshua Messiah. He fulfills all the Old Testament prophecy. He obeyed the Torah perfectly without sin. He was without sin, 1 John 3, 4. He promoted a one true Elohim model, the Father alone. He kept Sabbath, feast days, and was set apart. If you still think Yahshua can't be Messiah, then you're either not reading your word or you're falling for these one-liners and the heart is not in the right place. I like to use the, my final message and the worship team can come up if you'd like. Uh, you guys know about the Alamo. I thought you might like the Alamo since it's in Texas, but we are definitely in a bit of a similar situation. We're in a small population of believers. We're very unique and we're surrounded by several different opponents. We have on one side the Christians trying to tell us that we shouldn't be keeping Torah, but then we have on the other side the anti-Yeshua crowd trying to snatch Yeshua and Paul away from us. 
Not to mention we have the secular humanist side of things trying to push Marxism on us and communism. So we're definitely surrounded and then obviously 1.9 billion Muslim Islamic believers and growing. So we're definitely surrounded, we're outnumbered. But just as the Alamo, we should be ready to lay our life down, even unto death, for something greater, like our Messiah, who sacrificed his life for the greater good. We should lay down our lives, our time, our energy to defend the faith. First Timothy 6.12, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life, which you were called and about to be which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So let me finish off in prayer. Thank you, Father, for this time, and I'm th th very, very honored to be able to speak today, and I hope that the message was edifying and bringing people to a closer understanding of who you are and who your son is, Yeshua. I pray that the word was uh, pleasing to you as a sweet aroma and that truth, seeds of truth are planted in everyone's hearts and that we can grow to become more equipped, more equipped to defend our faith from all sides and to be able to recognize any rhetoric that tries to disqualify our precious and awesome Messiah, Yeshua, whom you sent to deliver us out of captivity, out of sin and death, and out of Babylon one day. We look forward to the kingdom, and I pray that we can hear those words at resurrection, good work, my good and faithful servant. So thank you, Father, for this time, and I just pray that we have a wonderful Shabbat. Hallelujah.